All right, let's read Genesis 42, 1 to 17. 42, 1 to 17. Here we will read about the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Or we could, could say, should say, the fulfillment of God's word through Joseph's dreams. 1 to 17. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man, We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Amen. The emphasis now in the last part of Genesis is the relationship of Joseph with his brothers and also in relation to Jacob and the fulfillment of the promises of God to Jacob. But they are fulfilled through providential means through Joseph and Joseph's brothers. Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's brothers. The emphasis here is on Joseph's brothers since they are the ones mentioned. For example, in verse 3, verses 3 and 4, ten brothers of Joseph, instead of calling them ten sons of Jacob, they're called brothers of Joseph. Even in verse 4, Joseph's brother Benjamin. Because here we need to have a, a survival and recognition, survival and preservation of this family in order for the messianic line to come. One of those brothers of Joseph is Judah. Is Judah, and there needs to be the survival of the Messianic line 
They can't all die in the land of Canaan. They have to survive for Christ to come into the world through the descendants of Judah. Well, as was predicted in chapter 37, by the word of the Lord, God gave to Joseph two dreams. In Genesis 37, the fruition of those dreams is taking place now in this chapter. Because in this part, first part that we read, his brothers actually do come and bow down to him. Yep. It said that that's what was said in those two dreams of Joseph, which dreams are actually mentioned here in this passage. Verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. He remembered them. Verse 1, now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? The famine has come. The years of plenty passed, the seven years of plenty. Now it's the years of famine, and there's supposed to be seven years. We learn later that two years had passed. Two years had passed by the time Jacob comes into Egypt. So there was going to be five more years, and then they stay there after the five years. So at this point, early in the famine, Jacob understands what's going on. It says he sees that there was grain in Egypt. Now when it says he sees, it means he recognized or came to the knowledge of, he understood, he comprehended. That's the way the word see is used because it says in verse 2, Behold, I have heard, I have heard. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 12, when Stephen repeats this incident, he says, Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. So he hears about it. He knows that there is food there. He doesn't know the circumstances of who is in charge, but he does know that there's grain there. And what are the brothers doing? They are inactive, passive about it. He says, why are you staring at one another? This is a bit of a humor here in the scripture. There are a few places where this humor comes. And this is the way we would also talk. Why are you staring at each other? Do something about it is the point, right? Do something about it. When there is a predicament, when there is a blight and a plight, what should we do? Do something about it. Don't just throw up your hands and say, woe is me. Jacob confronts them because they're not doing anything about it. Verse 2, and he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some, uh, some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Now, Jacob wants the physical life to be preserved, but Jacob is not merely after physical blessings, peace, progeny, and a pot belly. Right. He's not that way. We should not look at the Bible that way. We should not especially look at the Old Testament that way. The Old Testament is a spiritual book pointing people to Christ and pointing people to heaven. But to carry out the spiritual, you need the physical. The physical is a means to obey God and carry out the physical. Glorify God in your body. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And that's what he needs. That's what he's trying to do. He's not going to die or say, woe is me, we can't do anything about it, which is right and good. He's not acting in an evil and sinister way 
merely after the flesh, but he understands the spiritual implications and what he must do. Verse 3, Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. The ten brothers of Joseph go. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons from Genesis chapters 29 and 30. They are all listed there, named there, 12 sons. Benjamin was one of the 12. Joseph was another. And both Joseph and Benjamin were from the same mother, Rachel, who died in Genesis chapter 35. Rachel is not alive, so the wife that Jacob really loved was Rachel. He had two sons by her, Joseph and Benjamin, Benjamin being the youngest. Joseph, uh, Jacob naturally does not want Benjamin to go and death meet him. Right. Like he believes death met Joseph. That's what the brothers say in verse 13. One is no more, which they will repeat this uh, on other occasions. The brothers by this point are saying one is no more. One has died and now there's only 11 of us left. What he does here is also not wrong. You can understand a man, an old man in that situation, having a young son, a very young son. He doesn't want the young one to go and experience any problem. But he needs the 10 to go to bring back as much as possible, right? With their donkeys, with their beasts of burden, to come back with as much as possible um, from the land of Egypt. Verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Among those who came, likely they met up with others from the land of Canaan, who are in even other countries, who are coming and presenting themselves in Egypt because everybody in the surrounding countries heard that there was food in Egypt. Why? Was there food in Egypt and not in the surrounding countries? Because God told Joseph to prepare for it. So he prepared for it in, in the seven years of plenty. There was grain there, but not in the other surrounding countries. So, verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. He's the ruler. He's number two. The scripture calls him the ruler over the land. And he's also the designated director of grain sales. He is. Joseph is the director of that. They have to come to him, and he's the wisest one able to distribute this according to the Egyptians' needs and whatever he might be able to sell to foreigners. He's there, and the brothers come and bow down. They bow down just like the dreams said in Genesis 37. Just like the, in Genesis 37, 5 to 11, it says there in those two dreams that the brothers would indeed come and bow down. Even Jacob and Jacob's wives would come and bow down, which they do eventually in this narrative. 
in a later chapter. So they come, they bow down. They bow down not because of worship. Right. They, they, this is a, a custom of respect to bow down, uh, similar to what we might do today. We might shake hands, we might take off our hat, we might tip our hat, um, call, call someone honorable, honorable, Mr., Sir. We have ways of showing respect to others. In this way, they would bow down, not to worship, but because of respect. He is the leader, he's the ruler. That's what they're doing. Um, verse 7. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. Joseph must have been contemplating for all these years what he would do if he ever saw his brothers again. It's hard to imagine that instantly, the moment he saw his brothers and recognized them, that he cooked up this idea of what he was going to do to test them, to see if they are honest men. He does later tell them openly, I'm testing you to see if you're honest men. He must have been thinking about this for a while before, if he ever met his brothers and if they happened to be among the people, the foreigners who came to the land of Egypt to buy grain, what he might do, what he might say to them, how he might test them. He must have premeditated this test. I don't think it was an immediate instant idea that he had when he recognized them. Um, be, then he decides to disguise himself. Once you recognize, if you were to think of it instantly, if you were to recognize your brothers, wouldn't the first thing that came to your mind either be vengeance because of bitterness or compassion and love because of brotherhood and forgiveness, right? A desire for reconciliation. One or the two would have happened immediately, but none of those two happened immediately. This is not vengeance. His test of them is not vengeance. And it's not open um, recognition and revelation of who he is and who they are. They're not doing this openly. Joseph is withholding that right now. So this must have been premeditated. He must have deliberated what he might do if his brothers ever came. But now he recognizes them, disguises himself which is not a typical first reaction. He disguised himself and spoke to them harshly. Remember, though he speaks to them harshly, it's not unjustly. Being harsh is not necessarily unjust. Right. People think it's the same. Being harsh is unjust. But harshness is not the same as unjust. For one, as I said... He is testing them. He wants to find out if they're honest. He wants to know if their character has changed. Yeah. He wants to know if they are now converted. He wants to know those kinds of things. He wants to know that before he engages them openly. We know that. But keep your place here in Genesis and turn to 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings. 
First Kings chapter 14. First Kings 14, 6. First Kings 14, 6. Six says, And it came about when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway that he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. Well, what was this harsh message that Ahijah had for the wife of Jeroboam? Ahijah is a true prophet of God who is given the word of God to present this word, deliver this word to the wife of Jeroboam, who's coming in disguise to consult the word of the Lord. She's coming in disguise, wondering what's going to happen to her sick son. Jeroboam is an evil man. He's an evil man, deserves the wrath of God, and that is the harsh message. The wrath of God, the vengeance of God, is not unjust. It's not unrighteous. It's righteous, though it's harsh. It's harsh against these sinners. But it's not harsh in in that intrinsically, innately, it's evil or wrong. It's sin to say something harsh. That itself is not the wrong thing. Isaiah 21. Isaiah 21. Isaiah also has one. For Babylon. Isaiah 21, 1 and 2. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still, still deals treacherously and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Medea. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. Now here, in a very elliptical, implicit way, he's referring to Babylon and that the Elamites who are near Babylon to the north, that they will come and the people of Medea, the kingdom of Medea and Persia, they're all going to conquer Babylon, which they did eventually. Isaiah's preaching the destruction of Babylon here in this chapter. So, harshness does not equate to sin. And that's not what Joseph is doing. He's not being unreasonable. What he's doing is presenting a test in a harsh way to examine the true character of his brothers the true character of his brothers. And by the way, Christ our Lord would say to the multitudes what? He would say to the multitudes, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He would say to Luke 9.23. In Matthew 4.17, he would say to the multitudes in his first message, concisely written in Matthew 4.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if somebody hears that in the crowd, they'll say, well, why are you assuming I'm a sinner that needs to repent? That's unfair. That's unjust. No, that's not unfair. We are sinners in need of repentance. It's not that way. It wasn't harsh for Jesus to do it. He didn't sin, and neither is it Joseph. Joseph is actually 
uh, type of Christ. He's a, a figure of Christ, a prefigurement of Christ. Even Jesus' own brothers in John chapter 7, 7, 5, even his own brothers were not believing in him. Not at that point in John 7. Just like Joseph's brothers don't believe in him. Jesus ends up being one that his brothers believe in by Acts chapter 1, verse 15, but not in John 7. In the same way with Joseph. Joseph's brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe that he had the word of the Lord. But eventually they do. And we will see that in the upcoming chapters of the book of Genesis. They end up believing in Joseph, that he is the ruler, that he is kind, that he is desiring forgiveness and reconciliation. They do believe in his word by that point. But not now. Not now. Then, the actual test begins. In verse 7, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Is that true? Yes, it's true. So, so far, so good. And we will see throughout this chapter and upcoming chapters, they are being open and honest about who they are and why they're there, what they're trying to do, what the situation is in Canaan, what the situation is with Jacob and his family, what it is with their brother that they've lost, and the one brother that's back in, in Canaan, Benjamin. They're telling the truth about all this. We find out eventually, eventually, their character comes to the surface. And Joseph sees it, and it's clear enough to him for him to divulge who he is in chapter 45. But meantime, the test. Eight and following. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. Why would they... Now, th- about 22 years or 23 years have passed. He uh, actually 25... About 23 uh, to 24 years have passed, actually, because he was 17 when he was sold as a slave, Genesis 37, 2. And then he was uh, 30 years old when he became the ruler of Egypt, Genesis 41, 46. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, 41, 46. And then about a year had passed. So that's uh, 23 years. About a year had passed. Within that year, they come to the land of Canaan to buy some grain. So that's about 24 years. He recognizes them, probably because at least a few of them were recognizable after some time. Uh, Not everybody changes dramatically in 20 years or 25 years. And there's a group of them, so he could notice two or three perhaps more clearly than others. But then as he approaches them in close um, inspection, especially if they're bowing down to him, near him, talking to him, dialoguing with him about their, their need, um, he would recognize all of them. So it would be easier for Joseph in that way. Also, they are not expecting him to be the ruler. Right. They are not expecting him to be in royal apparel. Right. They are not expecting him to be 
the director, the national director of the food supply. They are not expecting him to be any of that. And they're not expecting him to be uh, clean, to be well-groomed. They're not expecting any of that because they sold him as a slave. And they just assumed that he was sold into slavery and that perhaps death encountered him along the way over these years. Sometimes slaves die, sometimes on the way. In a caravan, as merchants are taking people and their goods, there are bands and bandits out in the wilderness hijacking people on the highways. That happens all the time. Still happens. Pirates at sea and, and bandits on the, on the road, right? These things happen. So they don't expect him to be there on the throne. But this is the providence of God. This is the miracle of God. And this is a fulfillment of the word of God. As it says in verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. And we've mentioned these dreams. Let's remind ourselves of them. Genesis 37, 5 to 11. Genesis 37, 5 to 11. Genesis 37 and verse 5. It says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. But these dreams were not daily dreams. They were not everyday dreams. They were not dreams because of excitement or anxiety from the day's events. That's not the way those dreams were. These were divine dreams, revelations of God. The word of the Lord came to pass. Psalm 105, Psalm 105, verse 19. Psalm 105, 19 says, until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. His word was the Lord's word, and the Lord's word tested him and also tested all his brothers and his father and mother. Psalm 105, verse 19. His word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Well, now we begin to see it fulfilled. They actually came and bowed down. The father and mother have not yet come, but the brothers have, at at least to this point, Later in the, chap- in the chapters of Genesis, father and mother and the whole clan will come 
and have to bow to Joseph. 42, 42.10. Genesis 42.10. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. He accuses them in verse 9 of being spies and checking the undefended parts, the open borders without walls and fences, without guards and soldiers. He's saying, that's what you've done. You've come there to come across illegally to do this and to spy us and to overthrow us. But verse 10, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. They are telling the truth. He begins his test of them by accusing them of being foreign spies to overthrow the country. Verse 11, they further say, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Rightfully, they are being accused of being dishonest because spies, foreign spies, by their very occupation, by their very nature, are dishonest. They have to conceal their true identity to work on behalf of their own country in reference to a foreign country, especially an enemy country. Correct? So they have to say they are honest, they're not spies. They understand the nature of it. And it's not wrong for them to say they are honest. Why? Because they're being accused. So when someone is accused, it's okay to speak up and defend yourself, which they do. Whether it's in court or not in court, they're saying, no, we're honest men. Furthermore, verse 11, we are all sons of one man. How could it be that 10 sons of one man would end up being enlisted by the king of Canaan to be spies to go to one country. That's very odd. That's a very odd kind of thing to happen. It doesn't usually happen that way. Ten sons of one man working together to be spies in one country and working in a team. That is, being together in one group to do it. Spies don't usually do that. They're smarter than that to do so. That's why they say that. But when they say that, in their defense, it's helping Joseph know who they are. And it's setting it up for Joseph to demand that Benjamin come. That's what he's doing here. So, verse 12. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Exclamation. He turns up the heat on them. No, that's what you are. But they deny it, verse 13. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest son is with our father today, and one is no more. They tell the truth again. Nothing they say there in 13 is wrong. Twelve brothers, sons of one man, land of Canaan, youngest is with our father. We know that from verse 4. And one is no more from the preceding chapters. That's what they conclude. And whether they actually believed it or whether they began to believe the lie they let their father believe, because that's what the father said when he saw the garment with the blood on it. He said, a wild beast has devoured him. Right? Back in chapter 37. That's what he concluded. And they let his statement stand. Though they knew they sold him as a slave. They let it stand. 
At this point, though, they just repeat, one is no more, meaning one is dead. And they do mean dead because they will say that elsewhere. For example, in chapter 42, chapter 42, 22. And Reuben answered, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. The reckoning for his blood. That's one piece of evidence that they believe he is dead. Further, um, 44.20, Genesis 44.20, And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Dead. One dead. But the one who's dead is actually alive. And isn't that like Christ? They think he's dead, at least for the three days, or on the third day. They thought he was going to remain dead. They thought he was dead, but he was actually alive. And they needed to be convinced, first the women, and then the disciples, and then the others, they needed to be convinced, no, he is alive. He has risen from the dead. He's actually alive. And even here, it's going to take some time and they will be convinced that he is alive. They think he's dead, but he's actually alive and he's talking to them. Verse 14, 42, 14. And Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. Now we have openly in Joseph's own words that he is testing them. It's not an imposition on the text. It's Joseph actually saying it in the text. I'm actually testing you. I want to figure out if you are honest men. Testing you. By the life of Pharaoh. Swearing an oath. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. You shall not go until your youngest brother comes here. How would that be? How could that happen? Who would they send back? How would that be possible? Well, that's what we'll find now. 16. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. First, he says, you will be tested. And he says, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. First, he puts fear in all ten of them. Then he alleviates that by saying, one of you, one of you stay here that your words may be tested. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. He first frightens them to death. Wasn't he frightened to death? He was thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave. Right? So now he's putting that same on them, that same terror on them. And then in 17, so he put them all together in prison for three days. All together in prison for three days. He gave them a test 
of the prison that he himself experienced in the land of Egypt. He gave them a foretaste of that experience he had. They were thrown in prison for three days. Only three days. Only three days. Who knows how they were treated? It doesn't say. But at least they had the experience of prison, being desperate, with no one to help them, in a foreign land. Right? And we don't know if they spoke Egyptian. Maybe, maybe not. But it is a different country. It is a different language. It's not Hebrew. It's not any of the Canaanite languages. And the Canaanite languages and the Egyptian language are very different. Very different language. Joseph, by this point, he speaks Egyptian because he has lived there long enough and he went there when he was 17. He was young enough to be able to learn the language. And over time, he learned it. We find out later that they used an interpreter between Joseph and his brothers, which was another reason, another barrier as to why the brothers did not suspect Joseph to be their brother, speaking Hebrew openly to them, but using an interpreter, and that was another shield or barrier between them to disguise his identity. Well, is it wrong? One of the main points to gather from here, is it wrong to test a sinner? Is it wrong to test a sinner? Is it wrong to test one another? Is it wrong to test a suspicious sinner? An uh, unsuspecting or suspicious, a newcomer, is it wrong to test, to examine, to figure out if the man or if the men or if the people are genuine, sincere people? If they are honest people or dishonest people, is it wrong to do so? That's one of the questions that we need to address in this chapter, because this is what he's doing. We've already said that he is a prophet of God. He receives oracles from God to interpret his own dreams from God, but also the dreams of Pharaoh, which he did. Correct? The two dreams of Pharaoh. And even the two dreams, the one of the baker and the one of the cupbearer. So these six dreams, Joseph has been able to interpret because he's a prophet of God. So he is a righteous man, a godly man, a prophet of God, and has withstood great temptations. Temptations from his brothers, temptations from Potiphar's wife, temptations in the jail, temptations in the court. He's been withstanding all of these temptations, living a godly life. We can't accuse him of doing wrong by conducting this test. To answer the question, is it right or wrong to test? Doesn't the scripture say, you shall know them by their fruits? Isn't that what Christ himself said in Matthew 7? Matthew 7, 16. Did he not say? We'll read 7, 15 to 23. 7, 15 to 23. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. 
Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He says, so then you will know them by their fruits. Either the tree is producing good fruit or rotten fruit. If it's producing good fruit, it's a good tree. Good fruit means good root. But the opposite is also true. And that's the same with human behavior, our conduct. If there's a man who's in your house in the middle of the night, a stranger in your house in the middle of the night, you hear the door, you hear the window break, you hear somebody in your house in the middle of the night, Do you think he's your friend? Do you think he's your relative on a long trip and just needed a place to stay? You think that that's who he is? No, he's a robber. He's up to no good, right? So immediately by his actions, you know that's bad fruit and you need to act accordingly. So it's the fruit of the person that reveals his character, his motives, his intentions whether he means well or he means to go to hell. That's the difference. His actions will tell you what's actually in the heart. Now, sometimes we misjudge, but generally speaking, that's what the Bible says. It's the actions that judge the heart. And that's what Joseph does. Joseph does it. Jesus does it. The prophets do it. The apostles do it. And we're supposed to do it. That's why Jesus said it in Matthew 7. Right. It's in Matthew 7, not merely for us to know what Jesus said, but for us to act on it. You will know them by their fruits. Joseph is now testing them to see their fruits. Are they actually honest or not? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.